Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. These soldiers came to me, and that hurt me a lot uh, back then. They told me, are you working with the Taliban? And I said, no, what did he? They're like, when you're with us in the operation, nothing's happening, but when you're not in the operation, we get ambushed. Sleepless nights, cold nights, and you know, losing friends. And then, you know, you bring a man, he's gonna get released in six months. Like, it's more of a show than a reality. Like, you're running in the same circle, and nothing's changing. And that's why uh, the war was hard to, you know, to win this war. When I was with the Afghan Special Forces, even when we were uh, working with the uh, U.S. Green Berets, like the ODA, uh, we couldn't get the ear support all the times. But with Task Force 241, the moment we stepped out of the wire, we had an ISR above our head, we had AC-130 above our head, the whole operation. It was different in Task Force 241. We had, not all the time, but uh, probably maybe 70% of the time, we had more of a kill mission than a capture mission. This was one of the problems with the rules of engagement. You can't be nice to Genghis Khan's army. They're brutal. You have to be back a Genghis Khan type of thing uh, to survive. Hello everyone, this is Maz. Today I'm highlighting a truly remarkable event happening on the 2nd of September, both in person in Perth, Western Australia, but also virtually. Although I'm not in any way involved with this event, I'm promoting it because its mission deserves our attention. The team from Resolute, headed by Dr. Richard Machtingard, is hosting their inaugural clinical masterclass, Caring for Those Who Serve, focusing on trauma-informed care for our ADF personnel, veterans, first responders, and their families. Attendees will hear from James Hepworth of the Veteran Employment Program at Roy Hill, from Michael Winlow from Emiria to talk about therapeutic uses of medicinal cannabinoids, from Katie Stewart of Chronic Care Australia, who will delve into exercise prescription as medicine, from Dr. Alex Lim from Revive and a former guest of the pod, who will detail the potential of ketamine and its role in treating PTSD, then Dr. Dan Pronk, an ex-special operator, a doctor, author and speaker, will take the stage as the event's plenary speaker. After a Q&A session, Paige Collins from Painless will address management and recovery from persistent pain, before Danielle Murphy from Insight covers the importance of psychosocial rehabilitation for families. The SASR chaplaincy will cover the sensitive topic of moral injury, and finally, wrapping up the day as the keynote speaker will be Cameron Watts, an ex-senior AFP officer and founder of Hemisphere East, who will detail his advocacy for first responders. Importantly, all proceeds from this event will go to the Soldiers and Sirens Western Australia charity. If you want to know more, please check out the link at the top of the show notes and save the date for an important and much-needed discussion on the care for ADF personnel, veterans, first responders and their families. My guest today is Yusuf Sadiq, a former Afghan soldier 
who has recently authored a book titled 5,000 Days of War, the first-hand account of an Afghan Special Forces operator. In his book, Yusuf provides a vivid, honest, and unfiltered portrayal of the war in Afghanistan, offering a unique perspective as a native Afghan. He was born and raised in the country, and following the fall of the Taliban in 2001, initially worked as an interpreter for the coalition forces before joining the Afghan Special Forces. He ascended quickly through the ranks and ultimately became a squadron commander in a secret unit known as Task Force 241. He and his soldiers remained in Afghanistan even after the fall of Kabul in August 21 and played a key role in the security of the Kabul International Airport during the chaotic withdrawal. Yusuf joins me today to share insights from his book and provide his perspectives on the war in Afghanistan. Yusuf, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And my regards to your audience. Good, man. Uh, this is the, quite an amazing book you've written. Uh, I must admit, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's, it, it. I found it to be very direct. Uh, and what I liked about it the most, I think, was that it was not very, it, it wasn't over-edited. In other words, your voice and the emotions behind the man that, that, that's writing the words uh, were very evident in the book. Uh, so perhaps my first question to you, or put two questions, what motivated you to write the book, uh, and who did you write it for? Uh, so, uh, you know, at the beginning, uh, I didn't really want to uh, write the stuff that I experienced, uh, because, you know, I'm new in, in this country, I didn't know the Western culture, I didn't know if people are kind of very interested in this sort of topics, uh, you know, because especially nowadays, you see generations like, uh, people are a lot of becoming very soft, and these topic kind of topics are very harsh for them. So I was hesitated, but uh, so a friend of mine uh, recommended me this other friend, which uh, helped me a lot through this book. Uh, Brian, uh, I mean, uh, he helped me so much. He mo- motivated me. He explained a lot of the as uh, culture that I was missing and I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of mo- gave me some motivation. And some of the uh, former uh, operators, like from the SEAL teams, from the Green Berets I worked with, when I talked to them, I was like, should I write a book? And especially one of the SEAL uh, operator, uh, Jeff, uh, uh, he told me like, bro, go for it. Uh, don't let these stories, uh, you know, don't bury these stories with yourself. Uh, don't take them to the, you know, just, you know, Tell people what happened. People need to know. The media didn't really cover it. So this was, you know, motivation from these guys. Yeah. And uh, on the other side, uh, you know, that this 20 years, a lot of people uh, paid uh, for this uh, throughout the, you know, in this war for with their blood. Yeah. If, whether they were Afghans, whether they were civilians, whether they were coalition forces, yeah. uh, you know, a U.S. soldier, uh, uh, you know, U.K., Australia, and Canadian, all these people, they, these soldiers paid the, uh, with their lives. And, uh, you know, when the war was done, everything went quiet. So I wanted to uh, tell people, like, what really happened out there, who paid the ultimate sacrifice, and let's not forget these fallen soldiers. Mm, no, absolutely, and no, but that really comes through in the book as well. It's a, it's it should, and I, what I think you also, what I also like is that you say things in the book that many of those of us who've been to Afghanistan feel and have thought about, but never felt vindicated to say. Whereas I think coming from someone like you, who is an Afghan, who's seen it all and has really uh, gotten to understand uh, the war deeply from within, uh, I think. You know, you you can say certain things, uh, and also they carry a lot of meaning uh, when you say it. 
uh, and some of those things I want to touch on as we uh, as we go through. Uh, but perhaps uh, it's it's also right to start uh, with a little bit about your own background before the war. So, because you were you grew up in Afghanistan, right? Yes, yes, I grew up in Afghanistan. And during the years of the uh, Taliban, so ninety six to two thousand one, uh, I suspect you. I think you, you write in the book you were born in nineteen eighty eight. So you know you were you were a yeah. child going into uh, you know a teenager. So from kind of the eight eight to fourteen or something uh, uh, under the Taliban regime. Uh, what was that like? You know, how did they enforce their laws, and and how did that set things in motion for you as a child, uh, or your orientation towards the Taliban regime in the first place? Uh, you know, so I was uh, of course born in Afghanistan, and I'm in my mid thirties. So this one thing, I'm sure you have also seen it uh, when you were on deployments. Afghans are not really good with their date of births because we never celebrated our day, uh, birthdays. Mm-hmm. We never got the chance. We were in war zones. People were so, you know, tensioned and focused on how to make some money to, you know, kind of survive the situation. So uh, at the beginning, man, it was uh, kind of like, you're kind of blind, right? You're a kid, you don't understand, you don't know politics, you don't know what good is, what bad is, mm. what reality is, what, you know, you know, all that stuff. You can't really kind of make the judgment like, you know, this is right, this is wrong, mm. or these people are right, these people are bad. And uh, so at the beginning, it was fine. We were living in a village, uh, of course, no education, nothing. But education is a light. I call education a light, uh, a big torch with a big light on it that comes in into your life and, you know, brighten your path that you, as long, uh, you know, the, the, the path that you take in, it, it brightens up a little for you so you don't make the wrong moves. Hey. We didn't have education. I didn't hey. know anything and so in the morning we would wake up very very early morning just you know go help with the family with the you know farming stuff with the mm-hmm. sheep with the goats going up the mountains and then you know living this uh, village life uh, coming to the Kabul city uh, during the Taliban regime I didn't know who these Talibans were like uh, are they good people are they bad people uh, what the intentions are? Are they good for us? Should be happy with them? Should we not be happy with them? We did not have access to technology like no TVs, no phones, hey. nothing. So you you living in this? Uh, there's a new uh, you know series on I don't know it's on Netflix or something. It's called Silo. Hey. They keep people in this you know uh, in this place kind of. Uh, they don't have access to anything outside. They don't know, uh, you know, they, there's nature out there. They don't know there are people out there. We were living in the same thing as yeah. the silo yeah. thing. Yeah. If we wanted to raise our voice, Taliban would shut us down. If we wanted to say something, we would get, you know, beaten up. So, you know, as a young man, as a young kid, you get scared. Like, you know, they want to, uh, they're going to beat you. You don't yeah. know, they don't have a good justice system. They don't obey not the Islamic law. They don't uh, obey the you know human rights law. You don't know what they respect. So you're always afraid. Like if I say this one bad word, uh, the, the, uh, is this going to get me killed? So, uh, uh, you know, the Taliban regime was pretty oppressed, pretty, uh, you can't, you couldn't even have uh, fun as a kid. That's yeah. how bad it was. Yeah. So, I find that interesting, especially this idea that you're in a silo. I, 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 that that kind of makes sense in many ways, and also perhaps explains why, for some youth, young men, you know, the decision to join the Taliban 
uh, was a pragmatic one. It was basically because that's all they knew, or that's the that's the that, those, were the, those were the people in charge. Those were the people that could, uh, you know, they could earn money with and make money for their families, etc. But of course, there was the other side, and certainly post two thousand and one, when the coalition forces came in, uh, there was another avenue. Uh, so, and as we talk about in a minute, you went down the path of uh, going to work for the coalition forces. But what was, in your mind, what was the reason? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you you could have gone down the Taliban path, just like many uh, children or many kids of your age at the time might have gone and, and, and did do, in fact, right? And oftentimes, yeah. th- those were good kids, right? As in growing up in yeah. an environment that allowed that where they saw the Taliban as a, as a, as a, as a solution to a particular problem, i.e. getting money or, uh, you know, uh, supporting their family. So ha- can you talk about that distinction, you know, why some went one way and others went the other way? Uh, so I, this come to this point, uh, I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, education. My, I was lucky my dad uh, was a former colonel in the, you know, previous regimes mm. uh, he was an educated guy Gra- my grandfather was a uh, you know back then he was a commander in the afghan army mm-hmm. and uh, my uncle was a tank driver so uh, you know my whole family was in the in the service uh, back in the day mm-hmm. so in the past we also had these you know problems with the uh, you know the government against the other groups that they want to fight the or throughout the government even before the russians uh, we always had these problems mm-hmm. and so my dad uh, he he always educated us in the house you know the, uh, you know we as muslims we of course we pray five times a day and after the evening prayer uh, my dad would sit down with us and would tell us some stories Hmm. Like you know, kind of enlighten enlighten us with some uh, experience from his life, from his side of the uh, you know things that he went through, hmm. and uh, these things made uh, give me this decision of like I know these are not the right people to join, hmm. and the gar- the government is the right people to join. Even at the, in those times, I was uh, young, you know, it was very hard to understand these things. You know, you kind of go on like very blind sided. And uh, but you know this, uh, my, my family and my other uh, relatives put an impact on me. You know to always be a supportive to the government, no matter what we support the government. Because mm. back in the day, uh, when uh, the Russians were in Afghanistan, we had this group called Mujahideen, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, you know, people know them as Northern Alliance. Uh, Taliban were previously were a member of the Northern Alliance. Uh, and then, you know, of course, when they left, civil war happened, and then new group came up as the name of the Taliban. So my father fought the uh, Mujahideen, uh, not as a Russian uh, guy, but, you know, same thing as NATO is in Afghanistan as a mm. member of the Afghan army. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So these things put an impact. And my uh, older brother, he was already working with the coalition forces as a Terp or interpreter. Mm-hmm. So these the stories, you know, of course, put an impact in my life that, you know, I should join this side. Right. That, that, I think that's an important uh, point to make and, and that oftentimes it is circumstantial uh, because uh, one of the things that I found certainly in my experience and, and I think, you know, be happy to hear what your thoughts on it, but um, many people kind of uh, in the West certainly drew a very black and white line of between, you know, the good guys and the bad guys, i.e. the Taliban and, you know, anybody that's shooting at us is Taliban and those that aren't shooting, they're the good guys. Uh, and that's not often the case. It's it's often merely circumstances. In your case, you had your father and your, your relatives and your brother influencing your path. 
Um, whereas for some other, uh, you know, boys your age at the same time, uh, they had, you know, a father and, a, and an uncle who uh, perhaps supported the Taliban uh, and they saw that as the right way forward. Uh, in other words, everybody thought that they're the good guy. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, as, uh, as one grows up, uh, you know, it's only later in life that one realizes, hold on a minute, uh, what I do actually matters uh, and, and what principles and values I uphold uh, matters. But it's not, as, uh, it's, it's not necessarily as clean cut as good and bad guys. Uh, as uh, as people have often uh, portrayed it, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Oh yeah, exactly. The the the, the problem with the vistas, uh, as you mentioned, they have this uh, line of black and white, right? You are either bad, you're either good. There is no in between. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, uh, people. A lot of people were living in these villages, and not everybody was uh, part of the Taliban. Not everybody wanted to be a Talib. Not everybody wanted to fight with the Taliban, but when during the day you're out there as the government source of, uh, forces, uh, mm -hmm. Taliban are not there. So people yeah. support you. But as soon as you leave uh, that village, yeah. the Taliban comes back at night time. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. they, when they come back, they have, you know, they're, uh, they are very, very cruel. Uh, they don't. They don't have any mercy. They will kill you if you don't listen to them. There are like yeah. a ton of, uh, like thousands of stories that I have, uh, like hundreds of stories that I personally experienced throughout, like, you know, these years when I investigated uh, or, you know, did some questioning when uh, yeah. we, we uh, raided some uh, suspicious compounds. Yeah. And, you know, people told us these stories. So Taliban comes in into your home. You're a regular civilian. You're a farmer. You don't yeah. want to be part of the government. You don't want to be part of these people. You yeah. just want to be, a, you know, a civilian guy doing your farming thing. You just want to live in but peace. They, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And they come in and tell you you can't even survive yourself with your, you know, family. But they come and tell you, oh, cook us uh, food for twenty uh, fighters. Yeah. You're holy fighters, and you have to feed us. Yeah. And the, you are like. I don't have anything. They're like, okay, do whatever you want to do. Provide us the food. We are the holy fighters. We came to from God. We are doing yeah. God's work here, and you have to feed us. If you don't, we either gonna you know beat you or we gonna kill you. Yeah. And you you know they kind of give you no option. Yeah. So uh, that, that that's a thing. Sometimes I talk about it uh, on my you know, social media platforms yeah. that do not judge uh, people uh, based on you know one bad guy or five yeah. bad. Bad guys it's like a jungle you yeah. got lions you got deers you got crocodiles you got everything yeah. you can't really say because there are there's a lion there that whole jungle is about or yeah. if there's you know some birds there the whole jungle is good you might yeah. go to the jungle and you know a snake bite you and you're dead yeah. so yeah. Th th that's the thing that you know you cannot really judge like right now personally me i don't really judge this russian and ukraine war as to you know other people are judging it because yeah. i've been in the war I know those Ukrainian uh, civilians don't want to be in that war. I know those Russian soldiers don't want to be in that war. But, uh, you know, the leadership forces them. From yeah. that side, they're like, you have to defend your homeland, defend Ukraine. The, under, uh, the other side, the, you know, Putin is like, oh, you have to go fight. Otherwise, uh, you know, you will be put in prison or maybe get executed. Yeah. So uh, people don't really understand how hard for those civilians is. Like, yeah. Ukrainians want to be living in peace or the Russians want to live in peace. It was the same thing for uh, a lot of the Afghan villagers. So, yeah. uh, but th that was one of the problems uh, that I always had 
uh, you know, interactions with the coalition forces when I was uh, working as a Turk, like, not, do not judge the whole village as, uh, do not look at them as they're all Taliban. And... They all look the same exactly, of course, because there's a, you know, there's a village, they all look the same, same tradition, everybody's hmm. have beard, they, they all look dirty and dusty because they work in, their, uh, you know, the forums with hmm. the dirts and stuff. But you cannot say because one guy in that village is bad, the whole village is bad. So, but yeah. th this was something very hard in my position at the beginning to convince uh, the you know the coalition uh, members like do not judge them by this. But it was very hard because sometimes yeah. they would get suspicious uh, like why you are defending these people. You're yeah. like you know, so it was a bit harder back then. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, I actually did have a, a, a kind of a sub question on that point. Um, uh, when I was taking my notes, because because that does resonate throughout your words, and and perhaps uh, uh, we'll come back to this because I, uh, to lead into it, I want to get to how you became an interpreter or a terp, because it wasn't right after right uh, as the war or as the uh, U.S. Uh, or the Taliban regime fell in two thousand and one. Uh, it was sometime after that, and I think as you mentioned, it was your brother that was the interpreter first. So so how did you how did you uh, become an interpreter, and what was that like? So uh, this this one thing that uh, I'm always about this one thing and nothing can change it, right? Yeah. If we all work hard uh, to have something uh, on the table so we survive, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, that there brings more income and then we have better stuff in our lives. But back then for us was just bring some food on the table uh, because, you know, the, uh, the system is very, very different in, in the Middle East. Uh, if you own a house, there is no ta property tax, there is no government, nothing. So you own the house, that's it. Nobody's going to say anything. Mm -hmm. no, nobody's going to charge you. Uh, you know, versus it's very different like on the West side. Then, yeah. uh, so the only concert you have left, you have uh, free water because, you know, you use, uh, uh, you know, fresh water. Water sources like water wells, yeah. uh, and so that's free. Your house is free if you own it. And then the only thing left is the food, food on yeah. the table. If yeah. you have good food, then you know you're living a happy life. For us, that was the, I mean that was the case. Personally, for me, if you give me good food. I mean, of course, not you be a, the bad guy, yeah. but if you're a good guy, if you give me food, man, take me to front lines. I don't care. <laughs> take me to wherever you want to go. Yeah. I have mentioned this to you know, some of uh, all of the interviews I had back in the day when I was becoming Terp. Um, uh, you know, they were like, uh, Where, which base do you want to go to? You know, they would test you like, uh, how much courage do you have? Are you really willing to fight? Uh, because sometimes they would select guys for uh, to be uh, working for the uh, you know special operation, and yeah. so that was the case. My brother would tell me he would come home uh, during his R and R or leave. He was like, "Man, these defects are pretty good. You could get <laughs> ice cream during winter time. You could get you know this. Uh, you know you could get the watermelon in winter time. You're like shit." How's that yeah, going to work? Yeah. I mean, because we didn't have that good of a system back in of Afghanistan. Course, yeah. Everything was seasoned. Like, yeah, you know, you yeah, have yeah. this fruits in the season, but here it's different. So that was one of the motivation I had. Let's say maybe maybe 50 or 40% of the motivation to become a Terp was this. Yeah. And the other motivation was, you know, the money was better. Uh, and, you know, the job was something that, you know, it's military. And I liked, I always liked actions and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I want to always to be part of an you know, action thing. You know, I was young, mm -hmm. blood's being boiling. You want to be like this badass, tough kid. Like, oh, shit, I've done this, I did this. 
So these two things were the motivation for yeah. me, uh, you know, to become a Terp. And uh, the yeah. journey was a little, but to be honest, a little different. Uh, back then, everybody was studying English in the Kabul city, especially Kabul city. Like back then, maybe we, we might have had like six, seven million uh, people in the city, living in the city, and yeah. everybody was studying English. The yeah. only reason for these people studying English was to get a job with the English, either yeah. work for the NATO or work for ISA, for the embassies, like, yeah. you know, US embassy, UK embassy, you know, all these places, English would work uh, for you and you would make uh, maybe two or three times than, you know, regular people. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, the money thing was definitely uh, mo the motivation. And motivation. Then, yeah, exactly. You know, you yeah. go through these courses and um, you find places. It was, it was pretty famous back, to the, back then, especially, uh, you know, Camp Phoenix, which was uh, an old Russian transport station. They called it Afsuter, something like that. I think it's yeah. a Russian abbreviation. Uh, but, you know, it was Camp Phoenix in Kabul. Everybody knew that they hire, uh, you know, interpreters in yeah. Camp Phoenix. If you go to Kandahar, they, like the Calf Kandahar airfield, a background airfield, uh, Camp Phoenix in Kabul, Jabad, Jalalabad airfield, uh, Camp Chapman. These were the main places that the people knew that if you walk to the gate, you might be able to get a job as a turp or as a labor, as a security or something in that base. Yeah. And how did you then start? I mean, uh, uh, you, you uh, will save uh, a lot of the details for the book, I guess, because it, it, there's a lot of detail and I don't want to uh, uh, spoil the book for anyone uh, because you do write uh, a lot about how you actually became a Terp. But um, what was that kind of initial experience uh, like and what were some of the first jobs that you went on? Oh, okay. So, you know, first thing I started uh, was uh, at the beginning, my English, I mean, uh, still my English is not good, but at the beginning as well. Uh, Come on, man, uh, it's really excellent. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, you just wrote was, a book in English, mate. Come on. <laughs> uh, at the beginning, my English was more of like, you know, you have these Russian guys speaking in, the, in these movies, similar to that. So I didn't have a good understanding. Uh, and um, so I first started first my job when, you know, with this company, uh, when they looked at my English, they were like, well, okay, let's assign them with the Canadians. And because Canadians were paying the kind of minimum uh, compared to other NATO forces, uh, and then they needed the uh, Terps uh, back in the day. Like, not a lot of people wanted to work with the Canadians. I don't know for what reasons. Uh, yeah. But so I started with the company. They assigned me with this team. I did not know till you know, I arrived at the base. I did not know the uniform. I did not know who these people are. So yeah. they told me, like, be ready tomorrow every morning. They're going to pick you up and they're going to drop you up at this base. You know, they picked me up and, you know, this convoy was ready. We hit the base and we arrived. Uh, I'm looking around. I see this Amer uh, the Amer U.S. Marine uh, type of pattern, uh, pattern on their uniforms. I'm like, are they, are they these U.S. soldiers or who they are? And I saw a Canadian flag and I'm hey. like, oh, they're Canadian. So, you know, I started the, the, with the Canadian. And yeah. my, the first job was with the Special Forces, with the Joint Task Force 2. And uh, I did not know what the different, different difference between the Special Operation and a, a conventional or regular unit is uh, back then. Yeah. Uh, uh, to me, to my eyes, they were all soldiers. But there were stories like these scary stories about the Special Forces. Oh, these people are like, you know, when they're born, they take them away from their mothers. They feed them snakes and, you know... <laughs> 
uh, you know, all that stuff. There, there of were course, like, yeah, uh, the myths, a lot the of myths <laughs> that surround, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, they're not even, you know, built like human. They're like machines, uh, especially with the, given an example of the Terminator, the, yeah, you know, mm-hmm, Arnold, mm-hmm. the movie, they're yeah, like, yeah. you know, special forces. So it, it kind of gave me a little, uh, got me a little scared at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, I was like, man, I don't know what these guys going to do. Are they going to? Just you know, run into the village and start shooting uh, all over all over the place. Cause mm. I have never shot a gun, uh, and I have. I mean, I did not have experience as a proper handling mm. a gun mm. before mm. that. Mm. So mm. I started with them, and you know, we went out on this operation. I played it cool. I didn't uh, give them this feedback of like, okay, I'm scared. That's my mm. uh, first ever time, you know, stepping mm. uh, feet in this kind of environment. And Kane Horror and Ors gun looks exactly the same. Uh, in a, com- in a mm. compared to the north of Afghanistan, so uh, we uh, we you know we got off this uh, uh, the convoy. You know we went to the village. I was very scared, uh, and I was listening to the Taliban in the scanner if they were saying let's shoot them. I would you know sometimes they would just you know mess around and they would just you know say stuff but they not do anything sometimes they would do so if they're saying like let's shoot them i went to prune position you know being scared like they i might get shot at or... just on that scanner can you just uh clarify because some in the audience might not understand what you mean by the scanner and you listening because uh some who haven't experienced that might not necessarily understand it oh okay sure so i can scanner as a communication device it's like in your radio uh, that scans uh, frequencies from other radios if they're not encrypted mm-hmm. and you could listen to them and mm-hmm. you cannot talk to them back in most scanners you couldn't talk to them back uh, at the beginning they didn't know we were listening to them but later mm-hmm. they knew yeah. so Taliban talking to each other like hey you know as an example they had different calls and like hey Jason can you hear me yeah I see you know they called all the you know coalition forces infidel I mm-hmm. see infidels walking in the village let's ambush them oh have the pkm ready so i'm listening and i'm mm, uh, mm. you know passing this information to the captain that i was working with mm-hmm. uh, he was right in front of me so i was right behind the captain i was like oh this is what they want to do or oh, they're gonna and my feelings uh at the beginning i didn't know this but uh the feeling uh, with them passing the message was very important because if i was like ah they're gonna ambush and you know what it doesn't really sound serious but if i'm like oh they're gonna ambush they probably have the pks ready you know people get the like oh shit he's kind of you know he's in a panic kind of not panic but that scary situation that oh they Mm, maybe might get shot at yeah Yeah. exactly stress the better uh so uh, i you know i didn't know if they are serious or they're not so i was like oh shit they're gonna shoot at us i just went prone position and so that that uh, the scanner thing was this like we could listen hey. to them and uh-huh. we could hear them and we, hey. we had it like uh, we had it from i don't know years maybe 2005 till end of the 2021 we always hey. use hey. scanners yeah yeah um, of course yeah. so yeah the, this was the you know the experience with the after this first operation uh man that fear thing was gone i don't know what happened uh you know that fear was gone Mm. I don't know if I was very young, being uh, maybe, uh, but you know, elegant, not caring about anything. Uh, next operation, I was like, you know, walking, you know, not really. Uh, if the, I see something uh, like, you know, bad's gonna happen on the here, something bad's gonna happen in the scanner, I would take it serious, but not be scared. So I that fear was gone. You mm. know, I was happy, but I don't know what tricked it. But the, the fear was gone at the second operation. Mm. And you spend a lot of time in the book, or, or you mention it quite a few times, 
about your life as an interpreter and how misunderstood your life as an interpreter, not just yours, but the life of uh, the interpreters, uh, how misunderstood it was by many uh, who they worked for, whether it be the civilian contracting companies that they, that, that employed them uh, or the coalition forces uh, that they worked with. What are some of those things that you've uh, that you found uh, that those who you worked for or who employed you didn't really understand about the circumstances of the Terps? Oh, he asked a very, very good question. You know, when I was writing the book, uh, the close uh, friends I have uh, here in the U.S., uh, we worked together uh, yeah. throughout all these years. Uh, so most of them are here in the city I'm living. Yeah. And I told them about the book. They were so excited. And, you know, the first thing everybody mentioned was, are you going to talk about the problems that we were facing? And I was like, oh, yeah, I already have that covered. So this was one of the frustration I had. Look, you know, if me and you fighting a war, we are on the front line, and this is my nature, this is my habit. If you do not trust me uh, just even a little bit, I have this feeling like I don't want to be with this guy. I don't want to be fighting uh, alongside this guy because you're not trusting me. Yeah. Uh, that, that was the case in uh, some of the play. I don't know. So just uh, let me be clear. I'm, I'm not blaming any soldiers. Yeah. Soldiers were, uh, you know, uh, of course, uh, obeying or following orders. It was the leadership, man. Fucking generals, the colonels uh, making up all these decisions on these Terps. Terps were the uh, the best asset for you know a coalition unit out More there. More an essential uh, asset. I mean, th- there was nothing the coalition force really could have done apart drop apart from drop bombs in places uh, without the interpreters because we had no exactly. language skills as uh, as the coalition force. There was very very there were very few and far between. Uh, that knew the local context, knew the languages, knew the culture. Uh, so it was an absolutely essential part of the war effort. Exactly. And so that was, this was the problem. I was always trying to do something, uh, you know, to let the team know that what you're doing is not good. It's, you know, it's going to have some consequences in the future for us, whether it was culture, whether it was uh, treating the people in the village, especially the topic that we covered, like looking at the, everybody in the village as bad guy. Uh, that wasn't a good uh, sign. So I wanted to tell them like, hey, no, this is different. Look, uh, we cannot look at all of them as bad guy. That's going to put uh, a bad uh, impact in the future yeah. when you come, you know, because we were going out in these villages uh, every every day. And, you know, if you treat them like they're all bad guys, they will Afghans are pretty bad at taking revenge. Like they yeah. take hate very personal. If you uh, treat them nice, uh, they're like, oh, they always remember that you treat them nice. And if 10 years pass, they try to pay, pay that back to you. But yeah. if you treat, yeah. treat them badly, uh, they take that very deep into their hearts. Like, OK, yeah. you know, I have not done anything to this guy. Why he's treating me this bad? He, you came to my country. You're treating me like I'm the bad guy, which yeah. I'm not. So th- this was very hard for me as a Terp to uh, conv- uh, you know, convince the, co- you know, the unit that I was working with, like, hey, this is not a good behavior. Let's not do this culturally. This is not right. Uh, you know, just trying to avoid uh, problems in the future. Yeah, but yeah. Th- th- this one, very, among all these problems, this this one of the worst one that bothered me a lot. Yeah. We are going out on the operation six months in a row. I mean, if you were going out every other day in two days, maybe two times a week, three times a week, uh, and 
when I met the team, uh, we had uh, four Turks that were working uh, with this uh, team I was working with. Mm-hmm. And uh, one operation, they would take two. The other operation, take two. Sometimes they would take four of us. When I was going out in these operations, I, I never get ambushed uh, when I was working with the Canadians. I, I got lucky. You know, I look at it as a blessing from God. As I look at it as a, a blessing, you know, from my prayers or support yeah, from yeah. my parents. And But these soldiers came to me. That hurt me a lot uh, back then. They told me, are you working with the Taliban? And I said, what did he? They're like, when you're with us in the operation, nothing's happening, but when you're not in the operation, we get ambushed. And uh, I'm like, I don't, I, I, it's my first time ever in this part of the country. I don't mm-hmm. even know these people. I don't know. I mean, uh, this question bothered me so much, to be honest. Like, they mm-hmm. didn't, uh, came as a joke that I would say, like, oh, maybe they're joking, they're just being funny or sarcastic, but they were serious. They're like, uh, man, yeah. When you're but when you're not realizing the operations, we get ambushed, and I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't even. I I didn't have access to my phone even back then. I mm. don't know who these guys are. I don't. I mean, I never been in these villages, so and I won't be a stupid uh, to uh, you know pass information to the Taliban while living inside a uh, military base. Phones are being scanned. You know, conversations being sometimes listen to and uh, do I look that stupid that I mm. give away information to get my friends killed like the, mm. if I don't care about you uh, these two Afghans that are going out with you they're like my friends they're my very very good friends mm. I mean uh, if it wasn't let's say uh, I don't care about you because you're not an Afghan I would care about them I know as a human being as a Muslim uh, I know if I do something wrong I will answer to God especially taking mm. somebody's life Mm-hmm. If you take somebody's uh, innocent life, no matter what religion, what they believe in, where they're from, you're responsible. Mm-hmm. I know this for a fact that God will hold you responsible. God's going to ask you, this came in our holy books, that did, did you give that, that person life and soul that you were there to take it? No, mm-hmm. I created you as equal as him. I yeah. give you chances, you know, to worship whatever you want. I give him chances. I feed you. I feed him. So you're not in no place to make that decision to take his life if he's innocent. Now, and I mean, if it's bad, you're in a war. That's a different story. But yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, so uh, that that was one of the things that you know that trust issues all the time. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to to track our phones all the time. We we weren't allowed to call our family members. Uh, we were only allowed. You know, once a week, and on that time, uh, they were listening to our conversations. Uh, we yeah. knew they were listening to our conversations, and um, so these things uh, were, were very hard. Like uh, when I was with the Canadians, uh, they have these three regiments. They have the two English regiment, and they have the uh, Canadian, uh, the French regiment, which yeah. they call it the Vendo, which is, I think as uh, means twenty second regiment. These yeah. French guy, man. They speak French with each other, and me and this Turk we were speaking, uh, uh, you know, in our language mm. uh, in the Darian Pashto. And this French soldier came to me. He goes like, oh, "Why you guys are not speaking in English?" Mm. Yeah, he was. Uh, what mm. he meant was like, "I'm concerned at what you guys are planning to mm. do." Mm. And mm. I told mm. him like, "Why you guys are not speaking in English?" He guys yes. are speaking in French. I don't understand what you're planning to do. And then he, I mean, he was a very dumbass uh, soldier, to be honest, like, you know, coming up with this kind of question, like, why mm. not speak in English? 
Like what? Yeah. How, what do you expect us to speak English? So these were like very, very simple steps in this uh, process. There were a lot of uh, trust issues that, you know, I mainly covered it in the book. Uh, you know, yeah. what one uh, saying, what one uh, word by mistake, uh, you would go through a six-hour uh, counterintelligence or CIA yeah, investigation. Yeah, yeah. You would go through polygraph because you said a wrong word and you didn't know because, uh, like, in the courses, in English courses, we learned uh, the source, uh, you know, the word source for the source yeah, yeah. Uh, was, they were told, they told us it's, it, it means a spy. Yeah, a spy yeah. means, uh, you know, of course, a spy, right? You know, yeah, guy yeah, operating yeah, in another yeah, country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, but the meaning was source in the in our language. Yeah. The meaning yeah. was source. Source also has the same meaning, but yeah. a spy has a different jurisdiction, working in different way, very different uh, environment or different uh, procedures. And a source is a very different. But in yeah. the uh, when it comes to our language, the meaning was the same as source. Yeah. Yeah. And we when we 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 were translating and we we were telling them. Soldiers like oh, uh, they have not seen any Taliban, uh, you know, spy around here. Man, yeah. they took us very serious for that word. They like, how do you know the word spy? Yeah. Uh, we were like, uh, I mean, this means source. I mean, we didn't know the yeah. word source back then. I mean, this means source, and they're like, no, I, 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 oh. can, I can totally see. I, I can, I can, I can hear the frustration in your voice, and I can see how how these situations can unfold. Because as you you know, as you rightly pointed out at the start, uh, you know we from the West tend have a tendency to see things as black and white, and of course, when you're in these environments, when you are in an uncertain environment, when you don't understand what's happening around you, you start making assumptions. It's very easy to see, um, you know, ghosts everywhere you look, uh, and you know, bad intentions everywhere you look. So, so in a way, and, and I'm sure you do, and as you said, you know, it's not the soldier's fault; it's the leadership, etc. Uh, I'm sure you can empathize with those soldiers on the ground who who don't know you, don't know the Afghan culture, don't know any anything about what's happening. The enemy looks the same as, you know, the average farmer. Uh, you know, everything is a question mark. Everything is new. The, the terrain is vastly different to what most of them have seen in the first place. Um, so so it's, there's a natural tendency to divide between us and them because if you're a local Afghan, well, you're part of them and therefore you're a risk and therefore, you know, and of course we've all heard the stories of, you know, the sleepers inside a base, um, oh, yeah. you know, turning on the, on, on the friendly forces, etc. Uh, so so this, this seed of doubt has been well and truly, pl you know, planted and of course Taliban uh, or any of the insurgents um, use these, uh, use these narratives. Right, promulgated these stories, so it's it's. But I can just imagine how hard that would be for you, who you, who's risking your life day in day out, to I guess help the cause, but then to not be, you know, trusted to even have your phone, uh, which you know, in in when you when you're far away from your family, far away from a, uh, you know, from the people that uh, you know and care about, especially in an Afghan context, right? Which is a very very social kind of collective type yeah. of culture, right? Where speaking to your family and your friends is part, you know, it, 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 it's essential. Exactly. It's, it's part of what it, you know, what, what, oh, yeah. what being Afghan is, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, th- I mean, th- that was, uh, the, uh, but back then, to be honest, I mean, I mentioned it in the book uh, just to give pe- pe- uh, people a picture of like uh, wh- what the story was back then. But, you know, back then, uh, I I totally understood these people. And I always kind of made jokes and funs. I mean, uh, I, I'm a kind of, I always try to stay funny, uh, you know, joke around with people, hey. you know, have, have a, have, you know. Uh, happy time and I totally understood them back then like I told these soldiers I saw the frustration in some of the soldier faces uh, when I you know, talked to them and you know they knew me I mean we spent six months together we spent eight months together and we spent times out in the field together we talked about each other we share cultures these soldiers knew me like this uh, one time uh, uh, we took a team photo and then you know i didn't of course i didn't have uh, i did not have access to cameras or phones yeah. anything yeah. so i asked one of the team guys i was like hey man uh, you know can i have uh, uh, you know uh, this picture just you know uh, back yeah. then nobody I, I wasn't using facebook or uh, stuff yeah. like that yeah. Yeah. Uh, so can i have this photo you know just a memory and he was like well, let me go talk to uh, the commander i'll be back then he went and then talked to, they have, uh, they call, you know, in the uh, U.S., they call a team sergeant for the OS, a yeah. special operation. Yeah. They had the warrant officers. Yeah. So he yeah. went and talked to the warrant officer and then he came back. He told me, I saw the sadness in his eyes and he's like, hey, I'm sorry, bro. He told me, hey, he said, I'm, uh, I'm honest with you. I don't want to hide anything from you. But he told me, you know, I do not give him uh, the picture. Yeah. And... Uh, um, so he, th- this all came down, as I said, uh, to the leadership, and then from the state team leadership, it goes to the uh, you know HQ leadership, and from the HQ leadership, you know where this problem started from, from the Afghans that they recruited as cultural advisors in the West, either in U.S. or mainly they were all in U.S. These mm-hmm. were the Afghans that they were born in in the U.S. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. they were never been to Afghanistan. They heard the stories from their parents, but they never been to Afghanistan. They're like you know uh, American Afghans, not really Afghan Americans, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they were uh, so th- you know mm-hmm. these stories. They are like oh, do not trust these locals. I always had confrontation, uh, conversation or arguments with the, uh, we called them CAT2 cat mm-hmm. uh, or CAT3, you know, uh, mm-hmm. they had clearance Security and stuff. clearances, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, I always had this, con- uh, this, con- this con- conversation with them. I was like, why you tell these Americans, like, you know, uh, do not trust the locals, the, especially the Terps? Like, why are you feeding them this? Because the CEO soldiers had uh, uh, this cultural training before deployments, and then these Afghans would go to these military camps. They would tell them. Sometimes, you know, I, I'm just frankly honest with you. They're all still my Afghans, but, I, you know, honesty is a different thing. Yeah. Uh, it, for them to uh, keep this job and to, for them to keep coming to this base during these rotations, because the pay was a little bit better uh, compared to other jobs, yeah. uh, they they were laughing about some stuff. They were making up stories uh, of like, oh, you know, these locals are like this. That's yeah. why they, these uh, coalition, when they come to Afghanistan, they had this mindset of like, okay, 
this is what I heard from the other Afghans in the US. Mm. Uh, and they they are looking at you with these, you know, uh, doubts and mm. suspicions and all that stuff. So it mainly uh, it always came from the Afghans that were born outside Afghanistan and mm. this information were feed into the soldiers. The soldier came in with this information. And with that, uh, you know, you mentioned, I think they called it back then uh, green on blue or blue mm. on green yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, but That's yeah, right. I, uh, these were the things that I understood the soldier and I was like, you know, but I understood them. That's why I didn't want to argue uh, because I knew uh, they were told stuff and they're just yeah. following the orders. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's, 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 it's a really tough one. I mean, I can, I can totally, totally see how the dynamic could be really, really, or, or can be really affected uh, by this absence of trust, right? Because it's a, and it's so difficult to build trust uh, when one side trusts completely and the other side uh, is completely reserved. Uh, and sees you as outside of the in-group. But from the, you know, if you're talking about the photo from the Special Forces soldiers, again, I can empathize from their perspective. They all have protected identities. You know, they're very careful about, uh, you know, and you know this as a Special Forces operator uh, yourself, how much you have to be careful about protecting your identity, not because of yourself necessarily, but because of your families, you know, because those who might want to do you harm uh, they might not be able to target you but they might be able to target your family and if your fo- oh, yeah. face is out there etc etc so, so there's all these security imperatives uh, oftentimes they're, they're they're blown out of proportion uh, but you know w- one uh, you know one like one act uh, one person dying one family paying the price uh, is enough uh, to cause uh, you know for this to become such a huge sensitivity so that it's enforced across the entire force uh, which doesn't of course help uh, your situation which is uh, which is oh, yeah. which is the really tragic part um one of the things that you did talk about in there is that uh you as terps didn't get the same medical treatment as the soldiers you were supporting was that the case with all the militaries you worked with was that kind of the status quo oh yeah yeah exactly so uh like you know, we you have different injuries, right? When you're out in the operate, you know, in the field, yeah. uh, sometimes it's just something you know where you can recover in uh, maybe a couple of days or a week, and some injuries like you know losing a leg, losing a hand, yeah. or losing a you know you becoming a disabled, uh, right? Uh, th- that was uh, one of the things that uh, we always had problems with it. First thing, we never had insurance. Like, yeah. if you lose this, uh, you know, the, the insurance will help you just, you know, to kind of survive out there, uh, n- not being able to do to do, do this job. You're probably not be going to be able to do any job out there, especially with the Afghanistan yeah. situation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you don't have disability benefits. Nobody's going to pay you disability. Yeah. Uh, there are going to be a lot of problems. So, uh, insurance was one of the problems because... Uh, from the other side, we were hearing stories like the coalition forces are paying these contracting companies insurance yeah. money uh, to you know support these terps if they get killed in action or if they get wounded in action. And but uh, this very uh, very very good scenario that I'm gonna give you is uh, it happened back in I think it was 2009 or 10. It happened. In mm-hmm. Kandahar, uh, an ODA team got uh, ambushed, and one of the soldiers unfortunately uh, stepped on an IED, and he had a turp right behind them. Yeah. So the blast uh, killed the turp and killed the uh, the soldier. Yeah. And so what they did was, uh, you know, of course uh, they take the U.S. soldier to the, you know, of course uh, through their uh, process, and then for the Afghan turp, 
this is what they did. I mean, the uh, the other Turk that was in that operation was a very good friend of mine, and we worked together in in uh, for almost two years in different places. Yeah. And uh, so what happened? They took this Afghan's dead body. They took it to Kandahar to CAF or Kandahar Airfield, mm -hmm. where the you know main HQ was. And then they called the company and told them, like, oh, there's a dead uh, Turp here, or he was killed in action, or KIA Turp. Uh, you know, come take the body and you know hand it over to his family for you know proper burial and all yeah, that yeah, funeral yeah. stuff. So uh, the uh, you know the company comes in and you take the body, and because of uh, you know all the turfs were using call signs that nobody was using as a real name back then, so everybody had a call sign yeah, yeah. Uh, for you know for security reason yeah, I mean, it was easier to pronounce the uh, yeah. you know the Western name. Yeah. So. This guy, uh, you know, has call sign. I mean, the, the this guy who's dead, uh, they put the picture on the calls. I mean, the information of the other turb that who was alive is uh, still back in the base. Mm. And the, the, I mean, when they give him the information, this was the information and because his face uh, was a little messed up and the company didn't know uh, you individually. So they're like, oh, that's him. This yeah. is this guy. They print out your information. And then uh, so they take the body to Kabul. They call the family member of this other turp that who's still alive, <laughs> but he does not have a phone because of the restriction and all that <laughs> stuff <laughs> to call family, you know, check on them. So the call family is called. And <laughs> so when the family is called, this also happened. The guys from the company are hiding in the airport and they, through the over the phone, they tell him like, oh, the body is in this part of the airport. Go take over the custody of the body. They don't even properly hand over yeah. the you know the you know your loved one that was killed in action. So they take the body. They take the body home. This kid, uh, you know, he didn't have any brothers. Uh, he had like uh, two young sisters. Uh, he wasn't really social like the other Afghans. Like the, a lot of families didn't know him. So they take the body home and you know all that stuff. Uh, and you know the process start for the funeral and the burial. And uh, this is all culture. Our father yeah. and mom at the end comes in and say their goodbyes uh, to their loved one before they take him to the cemetery to bury the you know the dead person. Yeah. And so the father comes in and then the the, the father sees uh, you know the dead body. So you know it's uh, the the deads are wrapped in the coffin. Yeah. And so he opens his face and he sees a different person. He goes like, "Oh, this is not my son." And this is the frustrating part. Everybody's like, oh, uncle, we understand. It's hard for you to believe it. But, you know, this was God's will. This happened. He goes like, he's not my son. He oh, doesn't look God. like my, he's not my son. And everybody's like, quiet. You know that panic situation? Yeah. You're like stressed out. Like, yeah. I can't express harder. Like, you know, he's not my son. And everybody's quiet. Like, oh, you know, they're feeling like, oh, I'm sorry. Mm. It's hard for him. He can yeah, comprehend he can't or understand it. Yeah, and so I mean, then he he blasts. He goes like, "Motherfuckers!" I'm sorry for cursing. No, no, that's fine. I, yeah. yeah, he's like, "Motherfuckers!" He's not my son. People like, uh, you know, let's let's uh, you know call the mom, see what's going on. So the mom comes in into the room. The mom looks at looks at the you know uh, the dead body, yeah. and he's like, "He he's not my son. I don't know who that guy is." Oh, and wow. so at this time, while this is happening, the team found out that they uh, the company has given the wrong information uh, to the family. They took the wrong body to the wrong uh, 
place. And so they give the, uh, back then, you know, the phones were, weren't working most of the places. So they uh, they give the Iridium or the satellite phone to, mm-hmm. you know, call your family member, uh, you know, something bad happened. So he calls his family. You know, if you when you call from satellite phones, the number comes in as 001 and then a uh, kind of uh, American yeah. number. Long, yeah. So, the father looks at his phone. This is a story from his, the son's side when he talked to his father. He goes like, uh, who's this at this time? So, you know, he calls him again. He picks up. He goes like, who is this? He was like, hey, dad, this is me. Let's call sign. Uh, I mean, back then it was different, but let's say John. Hey, dad, you know, my, I'm John. He goes like, John who? My son? He was like, yeah, dad, this is me, John. And the father goes like, where are you? He goes, oh, I'm in northern Afghanistan working in a civilian company. He goes like, motherfucker, who's this, the buddy then in my house that they told me your son was killed working? So this Turk did not even tell his family that he was going to work with the coalition forces. Oh, wow, wow, uh, yeah. wow, wow. So, th- you know, these are like, you know, uh, the problems. This and, is reality and so, for the Turk, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. And, uh, I mean, uh, that's this is the side of the family that the son is still alive. Imagine uh, the other mm, side of the family. No. So this body was going to Oregon province. You've been uh, to, you know, uh, uh, Afghanistan. Oregon is not a place that you want to bring a body that uh, he, he was killed in action uh, while working with the uh, Americans. Uh, so they had to take the body to Oregon. And man, there was so much mess. Uh, people were, I mean, the Taliban weren't letting the, like, letting the family to bury uh, uh, this uh, guy's body in the cemetery because he was working with the coalition. And, you know, uh, these things happen uh, quite a lot. So, uh, Terps lost their, uh, I mean, uh, legs. Uh, company never cared about it. Uh, Even with this Terp, when he went on leave, you know, take care of his family. So, uh, somehow he got the permission from his parents. He came back to base. They did not let him inside the Terps base in the ca- in CAF or Kandahar airfield because the company was worried that if this Terp comes inside the base, he's going to tell this story to other Terps mm, and other Terps will mm. be scared and people will start resigning. So yeah. they, kick, they kicked him out of the base and uh, uh, luckily somehow an ODA guy that he knew he saw him on the road. He goes like, "Hey, what you doing here?" You tell him the story. He take him uh, inside the uh, to uh, you know inside Calf, uh, yeah, where Camp yeah. Brown, the Special Forces base was. And you know the story was resolved. Then later he came and worked with us uh, when I was working with the SEALs. And uh, yeah, so uh, yeah. this was just one story. There are like many stories like no, this. No, I happen. can imagine. I can. I can imagine. I mean, uh, and and, and uh, just to, just to double click on one particular point. I mean, what that I think is important for us to to remember. You know. It, when you you know get hit by an ID or something, and you you might get the same treatment uh, as you know the American or Australian or Canadian soldiers there on the spot, right? You'll be treated uh, medically uh, in the first instance, probably much like uh, you know every other soldier that, that was there. But I think what the point you're really making is afterwards. So if you were injured, if you lost an arm, if you lost a leg, uh, or had uh, and and I, and I, this is where I want to come to your injuries as well through uh, one of your blasts. If you had any kind of concussions or, or brain injury, anything like that, none of that was. That's it. You know, you you obviously couldn't work as an interpreter anymore, but you were thrown oh, back yeah. onto the road. Uh, you know, and of course, if you were, if you had lost the limb, then you couldn't really work on the farm anymore. It became a lot harder. Um, so 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 this is another area of that that particular employment. 
that we rarely saw because we dealt with these civilian companies, and I'm going to say we, I mean the coalition forces, we yeah. dealt with these civilian companies who were employing interpreters and oftentimes, you know, were making ridiculous, ridiculous profits, um, but paying the Terps, uh, you know, relatively low wages, maybe high oh, comparative yeah. to, to, to the average Afghan, but certainly low in, in, in the kind of Western context. Uh, but you know the profits they were making. Of course, they were you know just 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 incredible amounts. Uh, oh, but as yeah. you say, no 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 insurance. You know no uh, once once the turp is being uh, you know gone through the meat grinder, they're out on the other side. That's someone else's problem. Uh, and yeah, so it's a that, that uh, I really do. I just wanted to, to to kind of capture that point again because I think that's not something we as the uh, ultimate uh, users of that particular service i.e. the interpretation service, we don't necessarily always think about, you know, the second and third order effects of the work that you guys did at the time. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, these were the things like as soon as you get discharged from, you know, the coalition hospital, uh, you know, eventually they have to discharge, right? Yeah. So, but in reality, you have to come back for, you know, future treatment. Yeah. You know, you have to come for either physical therapy. Yeah. Depends yeah. on your injury. Yeah. But that's it. You only get that one chance when they take you off the field, they take you to the, uh, yeah. to the hospital. Yeah. When they take care of you, then because that's Soldiers getting, uh, you know, wounded in action hey. or unfortunately getting killed in action hey. uh, back then, uh, like, you know, quite uh, almost maybe every week or every few days. So hey. Hey. Uh, they hey. didn't have a big uh, space for the people to keep them. So yeah. uh, when you once you lost that, you know, that access to the hospital, that's it. Then you had yeah. to go pay from your own pocket. And of course, the medical system wasn't good in Kabul City. Hey. Hey. And, hey. Uh, you know, if you lose a leg, that's it. You get those all the Russian time legs that yeah, yeah. kind of not really useful at all. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that was you know a little but, different. And the co company, it's all the company, and uh, nobody was following up from it. Of course, all this conversation, as I always mentioned, I even in my book goes to the leadership, not yeah, the yeah. soldiers that yeah. they were working. You know, it goes to the like the generals, the top commanders that yeah, they yeah, are yeah. involved in this type of contracts, and yeah. we always complained. We complained to the colonels that they were coming to the generals that they were coming and even our captains team commanders were complaining like you know this is how treat their how they treat our terps this is how much they pay our terps and this is how much we paying the company yeah. and uh, but you know it was never kind of resolved yeah yeah no i mean i can i can yeah i have some of my own memories of uh, of some of those discussions um you were you were blown up as well uh, and i just want to touch on that as well the while, as a Terp, uh, because from there I think your career shifted, or your your did did you tell us the story first of how you were blown up, uh, and then uh, I want to ask you some follow up questions on that. Um, so I was in you know kind of beginning of maybe a few months, and uh, when I was working uh, you know by the Canadians, and then we were going on the supply mission, and you know we supplied this uh, small uh, base. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It was close to Panjwai, which is a district in Kandahar. It was yeah. pretty bad uh, war zone, front line kind of thing. And then on the way back, uh, you know, you're driving and then we hit this IED. First experience, never had this experience, never seen the videos of, you know, yeah. if you get blown up, what the feelings are, what, you know. Uh, so we got blown up. We got blown up and, you know, I'm in the shock uh, kind of situation. 
because I'm a just you know a young kid, the regular uh, civilian kid who never had these uh, trainings. Mm. If this situation happened, what should mm. you do? Mm. What should you not do? And then so we had these co- uh, trucks. The Canadians had it. They called them uh, LAV or Love. Mm. Uh, I, Americans, I think, call it a striker. So they had this back door ramp. So uh, you know we drive a little further from the you know the explosion site. And then, uh, you know, the ramp went down. We had two EUD guys, very, very young kid. I still remember remember their faces, very young uh, kid. And I was like, oh, I always told one of them, like, you're very handsome. I don't know how many girls you can get with that face. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, may his uh, soul rest in peace. So uh, he walked off with his body. And then uh, the captain also got off. Uh, the, I was in the ca- track that the captain was in. So these three people got off. And then, you know, the EUD went to do the kind of the spot, see what happened. Everybody was fine. Uh, We just just had this shock. Uh, Like, you know, I banged my head. uh, uh, And it was just a shock moment. Nothing, no blood, no injuries, nothing obvious. And so I am watching these two EUD guys working on that ditch where that they know the ditch was yeah. created by the explosion yeah. 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 or by the blast, and then goes boom, the secondary goes off. Yeah. Man, this was a scene that always comes just in a flash right in front of my eyes, which it just did in this moment. Mm. Uh, th- one of the EUD guys, that you know, the handsome kid, his his head was blown off his body. And for you as a young kid, as a civilian, never seen this kind of stuff, seeing somebody die in that kind of situation, it gives you a pretty, pretty bad, uh, you know, kind of PTSD, whatever you want to call it, or pretty bad shock. And I I mean, I've seen bad things, but not in that level. And uh, so the captain, his jaw was hanging. Uh, He was, I mean, his face was damage all over the two EUD instantly were KIA and so that gave me a you know a very very I mean I was quiet for almost 40 minutes I did Mm. not say a word I could not say a word nothing was coming into my head that was Mm. just you know it's like you're dying and you know they say these memories come in front of you Uh, this was the situation I was like you know are we gonna die so, you know, uh, helicopters, uh, meta cashback uh, work, I mean, not cashback, but medevac were called yeah, in yeah, and, yeah. you know, took the bodies. And then we start driving back to base. Every road, you know, you've been to Afghanistan, road bombs are, there are a lot of road bombs in the places. Mm. Uh, we first road bomb, uh, not, uh, you know, the bump that, you know, they have these road bombs all the, mm. in the cities. Mm. Uh, we had this uh, ditch or maybe it was a road bump that, you know, the track hit. You know, first thing I did was jumped and covered my head. I thought we had another IED. So yeah. the PTSD started right away uh, there yeah. for me. I had this feeling, this uh, fear. I never had that fear before. I was in, you know, operations and, and yeah. all that stuff, but never had that fe- fear of just driving on a paved road. Yeah. So but the fear started. If the truck would break hard, uh, you know, I would jump like, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. is there any another explosion? We got back to base and, you know, things were small, uh, smooth. Uh, they, you know, they told me, are you fine? Yes, I'm fine. And I wasn't medically checked up. Uh, I mean, I, they, back then maybe they could have sent me to CAF, talk to, you know, some professional doctors because, you know, those are small bases. You yeah, just yeah. get medics, not doctors. Uh, so, you know, are you fine? Yeah, no injuries, no nothing. And uh, 
And so, you know, things went along. You know, I still had those. I mean, uh, back then I had uh, those memories a lot when we were going out in the vehicles. I would always rather walk instead of uh, driving because mm. of, you know, I was terrified of uh, the, you know, the fear of like, mm. not getting blown up. And then uh, probably was three months later, we were playing cards uh, with these soldiers. I, we were playing, uh, I don't know what sort of card game was it. Mm. Then I'm playing and then I go, boom, I black out. I black out, uh, you know, uh, brain seizure happened. Mm -hmm. Brain seizure happened. I did not know what it is. Uh, I mean, I did not feel it. Mm -hmm. I could not understand it. I, I didn't know anything. I was like, did uh, with my soul it wasn't it wasn't dream it was nothing like you're gone your body yeah. is gone your soul is gone you don't feel anything even even if i was get, uh, getting slapped in my yeah. face i couldn't feel it yeah. in that moment yeah. Yeah. so the soldier told me and i would get that mean scary face when the seizure pops in my head yeah. uh, and like you know i never seen myself but in a soldier yeah. told me like yeah. you get pretty mean face and the soldier's like, hey, are you okay? Uh, and I'm, I'm quiet. Like, I don't hear, I don't know anything, uh, but I don't see. And then he shake me and I was like, hey, what's up? What's going on? He goes like, are you okay? You look pretty mean and you look kind of, uh, I don't know, you don't look uh, as usual. As, as like, well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. fine. I did not know, you know, this thing happened to me. I yeah, do yeah. have a brain seizure now. I do have, you know, this PTSD caused me to have this brain seizure and my brain's going to be stopping time to time, sometimes, especially under stress, maybe yeah, 10 yeah. times. Uh, it happened a lot. Sometimes, like in two hours, I would get 15 brain seizures. Wow. And then, oh yeah, it was pretty bad. Sometimes it would like stress me so much uh, that that's why I always wanted to, you know, laugh and be funny. Yeah. I don't want to give a stress into my head so you know this stayed with me and i have to so th this is the most messed up part for me i had to keep the, the uh, you know a secret yeah, yeah. because i was worried if i tell anybody you know i might lose my job if of i tell course. anybody this happened you know i they might like oh you know he's not uh, in a good medical condition yeah, yeah, let's yeah. you know send them home so i had to keep it a secret uh i mean often and often happening uh, during operations during the firefights it never happened it always happened when i was quiet and thinking and yeah. then when it was happening i would uh, the guys were like are you okay i was like oh yeah i think i saw something uh, yeah. scary in that corner and i was just making up stories yeah. uh, just cover stories and you know it was pretty bad it happened because of my job but i had to keep it a secret yeah. not to lose the job and i mean that's 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 it's, it's crazy uh, to put it that, to put it mildly, but uh, he, how did that? And you said you continued for a while, and 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 I'm guessing you do. Do you still get these seizures now? Is that still something that you experience? Oh yeah, yeah. So you know, it was with me for I know for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. still with me, but um, in Afghanistan, I couldn't get the proper medication yeah, for it. Mm -hmm. Like this one time, it was years later, like 2016, maybe 17. Mm. Uh, I, they I, they took me to a hospital inside the Kaya, which was a they called it the French hospital. They had proper doctors and everything yeah, in Kabul yeah. city. Uh, through you know, I was back then. I was working with the SASR, and I'm not working, but you know, operating alongside mm -hmm. uh, as and uh, Afghan uh, uh, SF, uh, they took me, they saw me, they're like, oh, let's take you, get you checked. And then they got me an appointment. We went in there. And th this is the funny part. The French doctor, I don't blame her. Mm. Uh, I mean, in a way. So she's like, uh, what, what's what's your problem? Like, you know, what happens to you? What's your uh, illness? 
And I said, like, you know, this happens to me, you know, this. I couldn't uh, explain it. I didn't know it's called brain seizure. I was like, you know, I call it blackout. I just blackout and, you know, I don't feel anything. I don't. So it was, you know, seizure. I explained this whole seizure to her. And she goes like, "Uh, when does it happen? I'm like, oh, when I'm sad or when I'm stressed, uh, you know, uh, or when I'm angry. Uh, And uh, she goes like, oh, you know, try to stay happy. And uh, <laughs> this is what I said. That's for this is what I said. I said, does it look like I'm not trying to be fucking happy? I'm yeah. trying to be fucking happy, but you know, stress uh, is uh, uh, yeah. part of the life. It happens to you. And yeah. you know, she apologized right away. She goes like, I'm so sorry. You know, we don't have that level of uh, you know doctors here that uh, can help you with this. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they had because brain seizure. When I came to US. I found that it's a common thing, you know, a neurologist or, you know, their, yeah. their expertise, their field on this thing. But because, you know, probably they had a lot of soldier, maybe with the same situation, maybe she was thinking it's just, you know, regular PTSD, just flashbacks, nothing yeah. maybe that serious. And, you know, I could not drive. I did not ever drive. Uh, uh, I got my license last year on December. I bought mm. my first ever car last year. I mean, I drove without license in the field during mm. the operations, mm. just on emergency situations. Mm. But uh, my crew were scared of, uh, while I was driving, they were always scared. They're like, <laughs> shit, if it goes blackout, mm. maybe, you know, mm. you just hit a wall or something. Mm. And But I bought my first car like last year, but got my first license last year. And thanks God, before that, you know, I went to some doctors here and then uh, the doctor told me, the neurology doctor that I go to, he told me, you know, it's not a really big one. Mm. It's just something that, uh, you know, if you would have taken care of it back then, mm. uh, maybe it was uh, would have been resolved in two years, it taken, off med- taken medication. Yeah, yeah. But since now it's a long time past and it, it might stick with you and uh, you have to just take these medications, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, uh, till you're alive. So I'm taking these medications. Thanks God, you know I have not had a uh, seizure maybe for almost a year. Back okay. then I had seizure, uh, like one in in one day at least two three seizure would have happened. No wow. no questions. Yeah, wow. and sometimes with the stress like more seizures. But you know, so so far it's good. Uh, and the reason I wanted to find out that question is because of what comes after, right? Because you then joined the Afghan commandos. Uh, and uh, after some time, uh, and, and and I'll invite you to to tell us about this. Uh, you hear about this uh, task force two four one, a secret unit that uh, you hadn't heard of before. Uh, so can you talk us through that? Firstly, how you became an Afghan commando uh, in the kind of wave tops, and then uh, land on uh, task force two four one and what that unit was about. So, you know, Afghan SF teams were new back uh, on that time. Afghan, there were only six Afghan uh, commando battalions in the, in the whole country. And so it was, you know, the top tier Afghan unit. And yeah. I wanted to get out of this TERP job, not for any other reason, but just, you know, uh, for, you know, that trust issue thing was one yeah. of the main cases that I wanted to get out of it. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you cannot change the rules and these soldiers have to follow up the rules. So for me, the better way is to change path. 
So yeah. this is what I did, and you know, for, found out through information and stuff. You know, links through old team guys uh, from the U.S. side that you know uh, they were uh, working as advisors with the Afghan Special yeah. Forces. Mm-hmm. I joined, you know, teams. You know, did a lot, of course, long story trainings and all that stuff. And so this happened, and you know, I was part of the Afghan SF, and I was doing that for almost uh, it was over a year. Uh, and this is the thing about the Task Force Two for One. Man, there is no special forces unit in Afghanistan, whether Afghan or non-Afghan, that I did not know about. Hmm. I mean, start from the, you know, CAG, DEVGRU, regular SEALs, uh, you know, ODS, SASR, uh, first, uh, you know, commando uh, or second commando battalion of the Australian. I worked yeah, with them yeah. too. So, and then, yeah. uh, the, you know, British well, Some SAS, of them might the be listening. Uh, uh, that's, uh, that's, that, that's interesting, yeah. That's great. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. So then, uh, the bike. Uh, I think they call it one, uh, the one commando or two commanders, something like that. I, I'm sorry if I'm no, no, first commander, right. yeah. second. Yeah, yeah the, you know, the first one was the reserve, and that's the second right. one was the active do one thing. The regulars, so, yeah. That's and right. then, uh, so you know, I knew the bases. I knew where they're operating, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the I worked with the Norwegian FSK, MJK, at the British SAS, SBS. But when Task Force 2 for 1 came, uh, you know, the thing about Task Force 2 for 1 came to my head uh, through a very old good friend of mine. I was like, who the fuck is Task Force 2 for 1? You're the best out here. We're, you know, that thing, the competition between the branches. Like, we are the best out here, the the Army Special Forces. Like, who is this Task Force 2 for 1? I never heard of them. And my friend goes like, "That's that's the thing about them. You never heard of them. That's how, you know, back then this thing, this phrase as um, the quiet professional was a kind of common thing among the U.S. Like, you know, stay quiet yeah, so yeah. you're the quiet professional. And so curiosity started popping in my head. I was like, okay, you know, let's find out more about this task for two for one. So, you know, there are a lot of details. Uh, and then I joined Task Force 241. Man, this joining task task force 241 was a very very different experience for me in the, in my whole career like i have never been uh, to a unit this secret i mean i have been to task force 241 not the inside the unit but uh, like maybe um, just you know a couple of, i mean 100 or 200 meters away into another base and i even yeah. looked at their base uh, and i thought it's a regular army base that was very covered that was it was a it was a massive base but it was very yeah. covered i was like maybe that's part of the ana or afghan national army yeah. uh, uh-huh. but, uh, never this question came to my head there's this you know tier one unit here <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. so you know uh, uh I joined the process. I became, I mean, I went through were, the training. I guess you, as you write in the book, you were invited, right? Because it was very, oh, you, oh, yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. had to recommend you. It wasn't, uh, there was no uh, flyers. There was no uh, advertising. Uh, you were uh, asked to come somewhere and attend. Uh, and it was all again done very kind of uh, secretly. Oh, exactly. And, uh, you know, even when I came to the, uh, like, when I started asking around from other uh, friends that they were in the service, uh, they, nobody knew about the Task Force 241. They're like, uh, who is Task Force 241? Uh, I mean, everybody had this question, like, who these guys are? I mean, they had, most of the guys were, you know, not most, but some of the guys that I mentioned the story, they told me, like, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's probably a made-up thing. Don't yeah. don't, don't really bother yourself with it. But uh, when the, you know, the selection process started, you know, 
I was, as I mentioned in the book, I was picked up in a spot, in a secret spot uh, that never happened to me uh, before. And, you know, cars all tented, you can't see outside. Uh, I was taken to this base and then this, it was a massive base. And then we would go inside, do this, you know, interviews and questions and, and all that stuff. And, you know, so eventually I became the, a part of the Task Force 241. Mm. But this was one of the things, the uh, the good thing about the 2241, it wasn't for public. It was, I mean, um, what I mean with public, it wasn't for everyone. Mm -hmm. You, uh, like other units, like uh, like the Afghan Special Forces, if you ha if you knew some generals, if you knew some, you know, a strong politician, maybe they could influence uh, yeah, the your leadership uh, to get you through the selection uh, courses. Uh, but through the selection course, but two for one was a totally different thing. You couldn't even come to the gate uh, if you weren't invited or if you weren't uh, told to come to the gate. Like if you mm. would come to the gate, there was no soldier standing outside the gate. The mm. gates were all shut. There was a, to a tower with the tinted windows. Uh, you know, a soldier would come face, you know, mm. a mask mm. on the face or tell you who, uh, what do you need? And uh, if you give them just wrong information, they tell you like, you know, uh, just leave the area. If you don't, then you will see a cure of team comes and put a bag in your head and take you inside the base for uh, you know, an interrogation for yeah. two, three days. So it was a very serious thing, uh, you know, being part of the 241. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the salary was very, very different. The salary was, uh, I mean, I was getting paid maybe uh, like back then I was paying, getting paid as uh, Afghan uh, four-star general more than yeah. an Afghan four-star general. Yeah. Uh, so, but it was a serious thing. And yeah, yeah, I was yeah. always fun of being out there, kicking doors, you know, uh, doing, uh, you know, this stuff. But man, uh, four one was very, very different. They had low-vis operation, they had high-vis operation, covert operation, uh, working outside the border, working inside the country, all over the place. Mm. Uh, I, the the maximum money I ever paid to a source before that was probably, I mean, maybe 100,000 Afghani, which was like, let's say, maybe $1,500. But for Afghanistan, it was a lot of money. Mm, uh, mm, mm. Uh, but here, you know, I have seen people got paid, and not, of course, regular people, but sources around like $500,000. Uh, <laughs> this money <laughs> didn't come from, of course, from the Afghan government. That's pretty obvious. This money, this support does not, Afghanistan government couldn't do it. So there's, of course, a stronger power behind this task force that whatever you do, uh, nobody can question you. Nobody from the task force 241 ever were uh, kind of prosecuted or taken to a court. But uh, when I was with the Afghan uh, special forces, the army special forces, it was very different. Rules of engagement were different. Uh, one small mistake could cost your career. Maybe put they would put you in prison. But with 241, it was a very, very crazy difference, a different experience. Like I really want to talk the, about that, uh, and I want to double-click on some of those points because you've brought up yeah. a number of interesting points that are really interesting to me. Firstly, I just want to uh, talk about this, uh, the, five, the, you know, the half a million dollar payment, uh, US dollar. Uh, you know, what, what kind of a source is that uh, that would get half a million uh, dollars in cash? Uh, and what kind of information uh, would you expect from a source like that? 
So this source, uh, uh, I mean, uh, that target is gone. I'm not going to mention the target's mm-hmm. name, but mm-hmm. he was very famous. Uh, he was operating uh, close to Kabul uh, city, and there was a $5 million bounty on his head. Mm. And uh, so this source, so here's the thing with this source. This source was one of the craziest source I've ever seen. He had four passports. Hey. When I was sitting and talking to him, you know, we were talking about this operation. He told me right in front, in, into my face, uh, that hey, you are among my targets. He told me that <laughs> right, like right in front. And I, I said, "What do you mean?" And I, I was ready to just, you know, pop off, like hey. you know, this guy's hey. you know, just to get rid of him. He goes like, "There are people paying money." for you know for a member of your task force to be assassinated like they pay a lot of money for uh, you know member of your task force people yeah. and i was like yeah, so i wanted to make sure if i am specifically my name is on the list i have to like really do something about it we knew like you know there are other places i mean russians were going after our people from our task force iranian were going people our task force isis was going after people from our task force chinese were going after people our task force the uh, that keeping it very secretive uh, helped everybody with their identity hey. you know keeping them secret so this uh, level of uh, source was uh, you know this guy uh, in that level was he had four passports he had uh, you know of course obvious the afghan nationality he had uh, an arabic hey. uh, you know so, um, you know emirati uh, 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 I think it was Jordan or Lebanon. I I don't exactly remember, but he had the passport for this. Uh, I mean, for that country, he yeah. had Iranian passport, which is very very hard to get, and and he had Pakistani passport. So this guy could you yeah. know flew all over these places, not getting caught, and nobody yeah. could do. And uh, of course, yeah. you know that. Uh, if he was working for us, he was definitely working for another agency. He was definitely working for another agency. Mm, mm. But, you know, he is mm, like mm, that mm. Wagner guy who pays him the better money, that's he gives right. you the better information. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So so what was the uh, what was the purpose of Task Force 241? And, you know, why did it exist? And, and, and who commanded Task Force 241? So Task Force 241, uh, from the information I have, uh, I mean, I, from when I started working there, uh, it was established back in 2000, uh, um, 2001 at the very mm. beginning. So right and at the start. Mm. Yeah, mm. right at the start. That was a very small unit, and their job was, from the beginning, it was, uh, so we were working, we were mainly under the command of uh, the uh, the intelligence, uh, the Afghanistan intelligence uh, uh, directorate, or, you know, they called it the NDS. NDS, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So, in in theory, we were part of NDS, but in reality, we were you know we were part of something way bigger than the NDS. Uh, in reality, this was the thing. This unit was created at the beginning for you know small covert operation, whether yeah. inside Afghanistan or you know outside Afghanistan, uh, like in Pakistan mainly, especially in Quetta, where you know the Taliban. Uh, you know, they gathering, their leadership, everything mm-hmm. was out there. Mm-hmm. And so in the beginning, it was small. And their purpose was to be a counterterrorism unit. And uh, from the beginning, they had the top tier uh, U.S. Uh, units advising this uh, task force. Uh, so mm-hmm. the money was coming in, the money was flowing in nonstop, like, 
money for sources, money for, you know, food, money, uh, like our salary, everything was uh, just paid in the unit. Uh, like we had uh, almost zero attachment uh, uh, to the government or uh, almost zero responsibility to answer anything to the government. Like we're mm. getting paid inside the task force. Uh, our mm. supply comes in directly from U.S. Uh, you know, the the food is directly being supplied uh, by the the money and not the food itself, but the money to yeah, provide yeah. this food uh, as supplied by the U.S. Like every week budget for the task force two for one uh, was uh, around like four, four, uh, almost uh, four million uh, Afghani for e each week, which is... Uh, I don't know. A lot. It's a lot of money in US. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. if you do the calculation, it's going to be maybe, yeah. maybe I don't know, a hundred, maybe thousand dollar, maybe less and more. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that was a lot of money for just only food allocation for the for a unit in the country. Uh, you know, only in Kabul city, and yeah. so. Uh, you know, the job was to just go after terrorists, uh, high-value targets, not like low-level, uh, you know, targets in the villages, just high-value commanders, uh, you know, district governors, provincial governors, all these shadow governors, commanders, district commanders, judges. Uh, so while all the, like, you know, the financial guy for the, you know, the the terrorist network. Yeah, uh, yeah. So always after these high-value targets. And uh, so that was the main purpose of the task force two for one. And when I went, uh, you know, previously when I said uh, we weren't really answering to the Afghanistan, uh, the NDS itself, on the original side, when I found out later, this is something that I found out later uh, when I became, you know, top, uh, you know, among the leadership, we were getting directly uh, orders from the Afghan president, and you know. Uh, doing operation based on the uh, like what he tells us to do but because yeah. of his political problems uh, his opposition he could not like publicly uh, give uh, these orders to all the units so he yeah. had to like you know he had problems uh, there were human rights problem there were opposition problem uh, they were you know influence from Iran Pakistan mm. and you know of course Russia China uh, so he wanted to keep it uh, just directly under his command and uh, so that nobody else can influence the unit. The unit hey, commander hey. were uh, two people uh, from, uh, no, sorry, not two people, four people from 2001 till 2021. Uh, hey, for their security hey. reasons, I'm not going to... Uh, no, I, of course. Uh, yeah. No, no, of because course. They, no, no, of course. Uh, uh, they live outside, but because they were uh, the commander, the position of the commander was a uh, general. So uh, because mm -hmm. you know, when you become a general, you're a political person in the country yeah. that yeah. you can be easily mentioned and targeted. Uh, of course, but yeah, yeah. so the commander was a general, an Afghan uh, general, and then uh, so we had these uh, squadrons. You had the uh, combat squadron that were always going in highways. Uh, like a hundred, uh, hundred twenty vehicles out there doing operations, and he had the Lovas. Lovas was in the Kabul city, so Lovas okay. was like 20, 25 vehicles. You go after suicide bombers, you go after these high value targets that come into Kabul city, and that uh, nobody knew about it. So we had this system that's called uh, GSM. I never had this uh, GSM experience with any other coalition unit. Uh, the, this was provided. Of course, everything supply-wise was provided to us by the U.S., not the Afghan yeah, government. Yeah, the yeah, Afghan yeah, government yeah, didn't have the capacity, the power uh, to course, do that. Yeah. Uh, 
And uh, so, uh, I mean, we had GSM system that we could track, uh, uh, you know, the enemy or our targets through their phones. So the yeah. Nova's operation in the Kabul city was like this. You, uh, of course, you lock the target through their phone number. Uh, I mean, there was this big system uh, that, you know, when uh, the target comes into the Kabul city, uh, it pops up in the system that this phone is on. Uh, this yeah. phone is on the either WhatsApp. We had the cybersecurity section that was working on there, like you know, social media platforms like WhatsApp, yeah. uh, WeChat, uh, and you know, Telegram. Uh, you know, all these uh, communication stuff, uh, Facebook Messenger, and uh, so we had the cybersecurity section that worker was working on that. And then the GSM team was uh, responsible uh, to lock the number, go after the target, and without doing any. A combat action thing we would just capture the tor target inside the Kabul city we were in yeah. low visible low vis uh, low vis means low visibility for uh, your yeah. audience yeah. Yeah. Uh, like we were dressed up like just regular civilians in the city uh, that you know we could easily blend in with people yeah. our vehicles yeah. were different uh, you had sedan you had SUVs you had taxis yeah. you had not buses but like almost small yeah. mini buses yeah. and just you know uh, when this convoy is going in the city, there were like around 800 meters of difference between each vehicle, sometimes yeah. more than that. So you wouldn't notice it's a convoy. You think like yeah. this is yeah. one car here, there's another car. And the windows were tinted so you could not see inside the vehicles. And uh, uh, I mean, overall, uh, the task force was, I mean, task force two for one was doing a great job uh, when I saw it. I'm not saying this because to discredit any other unit uh, or any, I mean, everybody was doing the best they could, but yeah. uh, uh, to, you know, make uh, to sums it up, like uh, we could get, like when I was with the Afghan Special Forces, even when we were uh, working with the US Green Berets, like the ODA, uh, we couldn't get the ear support more all the times. But yeah. with Task Force 241, the moment we stepped out of the wire, we had an ISR above our head, we had AC-130 above our head, the whole operation. And then as soon as if AC-130 wanted to go for a resupply, which is pretty rare for a AC-130 to run out of fuel in one night or in yeah. a 10 hours operation, or more or less. And so if AC-130 was going to resupply, we had two Apaches coming in, giving us ear support. If the Apaches mm. weren't available, we had the Aitens, the Warthog, or War mm. Warthog, or they call it. Uh, mm. The a would come from background, give us ear support. Uh, this does not come, uh, you know, uh, If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode, and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.